Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Transatlanticist at the America Centrum in Hamburg. As always, I am your host, Andrew Sola. On November 6th, Americans went to polling places across the U.S. to cast their votes in the midterm elections. The results are still coming in as we record this on the 7th of November, but the clear picture is beginning to emerge. The Democrats have taken back the majority in the House of Representatives, and in the Senate, the Republicans have increased their control by at least two seats and maybe, and probably even more. Some of the races are very close, so there may be recounts. A complicated picture is emerging in closely watched governor's races as well. In Florida, Republican Ron DeSantis has defeated Andrew Gillum by a very small margin. However, in Wisconsin, Democrat Tony Evers defeated longtime conservative Republican Scott Walker, also by a razor-thin margin. In Georgia, Democrat Stacey Abrams was attempting to become the first African-American governor of Georgia, and at least right now it looks like she has not succeeded, but again, we have to wait for the results to come in. But what do these results mean? Is this a big win for the Democrats, who created a blue wave of women and minorities and are taking back America? Have the American people rejected Trump's Make America Great Again politics? Or is there another view? The Republicans increased their control of the Senate. Ever the showman, Trump has already tweeted that the elections were a tremendous success. Of course, there are more than two sides to any story, and the truth is way more complicated than this. Fortunately, I have a brilliant guest to help us understand what happened. Here with me today to help us unpack the importance of the U.S. elections is a fantastic scholar and expert on U.S. politics, Herr Professor Dr. Stefan Bierling. Welcome, Professor Bierling. Thanks for having me. Professor Bierling earned his PhD from the Ludwig Maximilians University in Munich. Afterwards, he held teaching and research posts at universities in South Africa, Israel, Australia, Texas, Yeehaw, and California. His research has appeared in numerous academic journals, as well as newspapers including Die Zeit and the Washington Post. In 2013, Professor Bierling won the Teacher of the Year Prize in the field of humanities, culture, and social sciences. He is currently Professor of Politics and Transatlantic Relations at the University of Regensburg. So, politics is a complicated and messy subject. Both our listeners and I follow it very closely, but we often get confused. So before we get too complicated, I would like you to talk about the big picture. As you look at the midterm elections and the results, at least where we're at now, what are the most important conclusions we should make? I think the most important conclusion is that American politics has even become more polarized 
by the results of the midterm elections. The blue states have become bluer, the red states have become redder. Everybody had something to brag about. The Republicans, of course, who were not favored by the polls, now can at least say that they have kept the Senate, even increased their majority, which is highly important for especially personnel appointments, especially judges. Democrats, on the other hand, have not only done extremely well by reconquering the House of Representatives, but also by winning seven or eight governorships, which now puts them on almost equal footing in the control of state legislatures and governorships uh, with the Republicans. Yes, uh, certainly in those three different aspects, we see successes for the Democrats in the House, successes for Republicans in the Senate, and I think the governorships are a mixed picture, but the Democrats did gain in that respect. I'd like to, of course, turn to Trump because everyone is interested in analyses of Trump. Many analysts have claimed that Trump is remaking the Republican Party in his own image. They argue that the Republicans are now simply the party of Trump. Traditional Republicans like Mitt Romney and John Kasich are not happy with this turn of events, and they try to distance themselves from Trump. Other Republicans, however, embrace him. For example, DeSantis, running for governor of Florida, King, running for representative in Iowa, and Rosendale, running for senator of Montana, all actively embrace Trump, and Trump spent a lot of his personal time campaigning for them. So the big question for me is this. Does embracing Trump help or hurt a Republican candidate? And what do these results teach us about this? It helps Republicans if they are candidates in Republican in red states anyhow. It doesn't help them in the suburbs. This is a lesson we take out of these uh, election results. Uh, suburbs that were won by Trump two years ago, they have now shifted very often to the Democratic side. Overall, I think Republicans, especially in the Senate, don't have an alternative than to stick with Trump. He's such a major force. He controls about 40% of the voters of the party. And that's simply too great a number that you can not obey more or less the commands that come out of the White House. So in this respect, Trump is a highly successful president. Um, and for the next two years of his term, he will not be a lame duck as some journalists had hoped or even predicted because Republicans have still a lot of issues, a lot of ideas they can actually get into practice with this president, especially deregulation. He doesn't need the House of Representatives for that. He can do it this by uh, executive order. He will probably rule like Obama has ruled for six years by using different instruments and not going through the Congress. Do you see from what we've seen here that in two years, now I'm talking about the next elections already, it's never too early. Do you see that uh, potentially more Republicans in the House will be forced to embrace Trump more openly? In other words, do you think Trump will continue to put pressure on all mainstream middle Republicans to move in his direction? I don't think there are many mainstream Republicans left. If you take away any lesson from this election, that would be that the moderates on both sides lost. 
look at Heidi Heitkamp in North Dakota, one of the few Democratic senators that were successful in winning election a couple of years back in a Republican state. Look at Claire McCaskill in the South. She also lost re-election. So moderates have become a yeah, more or less vanishing breed in both parties. Also, the Democrats were very successful in uh, fielding more young candidates, more liberal, pronounced liberal candidates, and they seem to be the new wave within the Democratic Party as well. So uh, on balance, you will have even a more polarized system than you had over the past two years. More polarization in Washington. I can't wait. I want to talk about just a couple of the main issues that drove the midterm campaigns. And in the list I have here, and maybe it's uh, an incomplete list, immigration, health care, the economy, and then, broadly speaking, incivility in politics. And here I would put in there the Me Too movement and fe feminism. So what do you think were the key issues that drove this midterm campaign? And how will these move on into the next presidential campaign? So do you see a, a trend in the next two years? I would say all of the above, but with very different results. Because the Republicans, of course, are dead sets against immigration under Trump, whereas the Democrats either don't take a very strong position or are rather pro-immigration. Uh, the same goes for other uh, problems you have just uh, mentioned. Most problems are seen through entirely different lenses from both sides of the political spectrum. So very many of these issues have actually the capacity to bring people on both sides, voters on both sides to the polls. And one of the lessons we can also take away from uh, this election is that mobilization was very high. Obviously, Democrats were extremely success successful in rallying uh, resistance against Trump, but also Trump was quite successful to bring out his numbers, his people, to rally against the Democrats and come out for him. That's a wonderful point that indeed we've seen higher uh, voting numbers in this midterm election than we have in many, many, many decades. The internal domestic issues, of course, are important, but I do want to focus now on transatlantic relations. How do you think these election results will impact transatlantic relations over the next two years? And we can talk about some of the big ones, NATO, Russia, trade, and climate change, or any others that you're interested in. I don't think they will have any real consequences on transatlantic relations. First of all, transatlantic relations are more or less conducted out of the White House, not even so much out of the State Department anymore, and Trump won't change. He has found a formula that is quite successful in keeping his own people engaged, and he won't change that. Trade, one matter you just mentioned, is even something most Democrats would support. I mean, a stronger stand against trade protectionism. That's originally a typical democratic idea that comes out of the unions that has been more or less captured by uh, Trump. So on this point, I don't see a lot of relief for the Europeans by the Democrats winning the House. Uh, also on other matters, uh, I wouldn't see, I couldn't foresee any uh, major shift 
in American policy towards the outside world. That, I think, was mainly a domestic thing. It showed that the Democrats actually can win elections again, which didn't look that obvious uh, two years ago, uh, that they have a couple of strong candidates in the field, even though this was not a real uh, avalanche of wins for the Democrats. Uh, it was pretty good. And in the end, I think they can draw some honey out of this victory because that will give them, give them some momentum for the upcoming elections in 2020. So you, so you mentioned that the uh, Democrats winning the House probably won't have a great impact on transatlantic relations. But I wanted to get your thoughts on a little bit going deeper into this because and maybe this is just my own personal view, I'd like to see that maybe the, the U.S. electorate is becoming a little bit more focused on international issues. I just read the Chicago Council on Global Affairs 2018 survey on the American public's opinions about America's role in the world. And there were some really interesting findings that contradict the common narrative that Americans are becoming more isolationist after Trump's America First campaign and his first two years in the White House. Indeed, if anything, the survey shows that the opposite is taking place. Americans are becoming more, not less committed to America, taking an active part in global institutions and international affairs. So I just want to give you a couple statistics and then you could talk about them. 70% of Americans believe that the U.S. should take an active part in world affairs. 91% of Americans believe that it is more effect effective for the U.S. to work with allies in other countries in order to achieve its foreign policy goals. 68% believe that the U.S. should stay in the Paris Agreement for preventing climate change. 66% believe that the U.S. should stay in the Iran nuclear deal. 75% believe that the U.S. should maintain or increase its commitment to NATO. And 82% believe that the international trade is good for the economy. So, Professor Beerling, could you help us understand these statistics a little bit better? These are all wonderful numbers you just laid out, and they really warm my heart. <laughs> But in the end, they don't matter much because in all of the questions you just recited, Trump has taken the opposite position and he has gotten away with it. So obviously these feelings are not very deeply held by the American electorate. And obviously they don't really decide how people vote. On the coasts, we always knew that Americans were more liberal, more engaged in multilateralism, more pro-trade and so on. But that doesn't help you in the heartland where Trump has most of his supporters. So you also see in these numbers probably two Americas. Uh, if you would ask the same questions in Oklahoma and in California, you would probably get two different set of answers. And I think in the end, the public doesn't care so much about foreign policy. There is a deep feeling probably of sentimentality for transatlantic relations. But if it really comes down to jobs or to wages or to income, and Trump tell the, tells them uh, the Europeans are really not paying their part in NATO, or they are uh, 
treating us unfairly in trade matters, these arguments will probably resonate more with American voters, average voters, than these wonderful statistics we have just quoted. I like the word you use. They are wonderful sentiments. And it occurs to me that indeed many Americans, given a form on a survey, would want to at least be perceived as being international and, and pro Don't, don't we all? So, um, yes, we'll, we'll have to get in touch with the uh, Chicago Council to see if they can uh, change their statistical methodology. Anyway, um, fascinating. Let's move on to the future. Uh, as we all know, it's never too early to start thinking about a presidential campaign. So what type of candidate do you think the Democrats will choose to run against Trump in 2020? Can you look at the characteristics of, of an ideal candidate now? I know it's a bad question, but I want to ask. I love bad questions. <laughs> If you answer this question according to the sentiments that you see in the Democratic Party, the motivation of uh, the people, the new blood, the new energy that has been brought into this party, uh, the next candidate would have a good chance to be female because the turnout of females was one of the astonishing facts this time. Not only the turnout, but also the election of more females to Congress than ever in American history. The next thing is that obviously also minorities played a much bigger role than most people had expected. Uh, Latinos, blacks came out in bigger numbers than four years ago at the last midterm elections, and they mostly vote for Uh, Democrats. Then you have the generational question. Young people were highly motivated this time, in contrast to almost all elections before that. So if you take these things together, and it's a wild guess, you would come up probably with a candidate that is young, female, and maybe multi-ethnic. And that would make you guess that Kamala Harris, the senator from California, would have a good shot for the candidate for president of the Democratic Party. If I could advise the Democrats, I wouldn't go with one of the old people. Bernie Sanders was very good in rallying support for a more socialist cause and being the counter image almost of Hillary Clinton's two years ago. But he will be too old and he is not a typical Democrat. He's far to the left, I would say. Also, Biden. Uh, is a man of the past. Uh, as much as you loved him as vice president under Obama, but he cannot energize the base anymore. I think what the Democrats need is a real change in generations. And the first thing to accomplish that would be to get rid of Nancy Pelosi as the speaker of uh, the House of Representatives. If they bring her back Uh, I think um, she would make a wonderful target for the Republicans. And more than that, uh, she seems to be a spent force. You need new faces, new people, you know, like Obama, like Clinton. They came out of nowhere and they captured the imagination, not only of the Democrats, but of the wider public. I think that's the only way to go for the Democrats if they want to have a shot at the White House in 2020. Thank you. As we talk about the future of the U.S., I'd also like to talk a little bit about Merkel's future. So what do you think Merkel's coming resignation, uh, what impact will this have on transatlantic relations? 
I like your question about Merkel's future because her future is the past. Uh, she is now a spent force. Uh, she spent most of her political capital on the immigration question and she couldn't win it, uh, as all polls nowadays show. Uh, she picked probably a point in time that is too late to leave office in good grace with most of the Germans. I think um, after the leadership contest for the head of the party, which will be probably won by Mats, that would be my best bet, a more conservative person, uh, but very well-spoken and uh, somebody widely revered within the party. He is a well-known transatlanticist. He is the chairman of the Atlantikbrücke. Uh, so for transatlantic relations, there wouldn't be much of a change. Also, Merkel was very pro-America during her time in office. If he should be elected, I would guess that the coalition would probably hover on for a couple of more months and that we would have new elections for a federal parliament in Germany at the latest by early next summer. And then all bets are off. Uh, the Social Democrats don't like this uh, prospect very much because they will probably lose another five or six percentage points. But for the Christian Democratic Union, uh, the governing party, the majority party, it could actually work out quite well because Mats could really gain back some voters that Merkel scared away to the AfD and to other parties because he will be the new, new thing. And this is, in these political times, always a good thing. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned that Pelosi was a spent force and then immediately you mentioned that Merkel was a spent force as well. And I'd never held those two ideas in my head before. But um, you have a point that there is a passing of the torch to the next generation that has to take place with parties. And lots of people want to hang on to the old generation, but it, it's inevitable. So the question is, when do you really uh, force that yeah. process? It's not fair. It's sometimes unfortunate. But people also get tired of politicians. I uh, remember many people got very tired of Schröder after only seven years in office. They were tired of Kohl after eight years in office, and he got a second wind, so to speak, through reunification. Merkel managed to hold on to power as a strong chancellor and strong leadership figure for much longer than any other chancellor in German history, even than Adenauer. He also in his final years was seen as too old, too weak, uh, also not decisive enough anymore to carry on with this very burdensome job. And I think this has finally caught up with Merkel as well. Okay, I have one final question. I always like to ask my guests about important issues that do not get enough attention from policymakers, scholars, and the media. Everyone discusses climate change, NATO, immigration, Russia, tariffs, trade wars, and so on. However, there are other really important issues that do not get enough attention. So, Professor Bierling, what is a really important issue in transatlantic relations that we are not paying enough attention to? and that we really should be paying more attention to? I think in the end, it's the shift of global powers away from what we call or used to call the West, the United States, and Europe towards East Asia, namely China. 
Sometimes we get some foggy idea how important China has become in trade relations with Europe, in trade relations with the United States. But China is now probably the biggest partner of all African nations. They doing a lot of trade, but also gaining political influence in Latin America. So in all these continents that we for a very long time saw as land masses that had been shaped by European religion, by European languages, uh, and thereby would be forever bound to European interests, they are shifting away and going new ways. And China is using uh, this very smartly. It doesn't really uh, compete with the Europeans and Americans so much as that the Europeans and Americans are creating a vacuum by focusing so much about on their domestic problems. And China is using this in, uh, opportunity to gain strength, to gain influence all around the globe. And at the end, I think, this will be something uh, we haven't really taken account in uh, account for so much in our strategic thinking. I've heard this only from one other guest that we should all be focusing more on China. So you've heard it here again. We should all be doing a lot more research on China and China's influence on global affairs. That was just a wonderful discussion. I'm so honored that Professor Beerling was here. Thank you, Professor Beerling. Great pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to The Transatlanticist. If you enjoy the show, please support us by subscribing for free with iTunes, TuneIn, or your podcast provider. Also, please be so kind as to give us a five-star rating and review. If you would like to provide comments, suggest topics, or recommend guests, I'd love to hear from you. Please send me an email at asola at americacentrum.de. And just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the America Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening.